Welcome to another episode of Grace on Tap. Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to the history and the theology of the Lutheran Reformation all over a nice cold beer. I'm Evan Gertner. And I'm Mike Yagley. Welcome to Grace on Tap. We are continuing our conversation of the first Sunday in Advent Gospel, Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. You can go to episode 68 and hear how we began our conversation on this gospel lesson. And just as a highlight of where we finished, we were looking at uh, Matthew chapter 21, verse 5, where it says, Behold, your king is coming to you. That word behold, Luther comments on it as notice or see. And he is asking us to notice and see what kind of king is arriving, that Christ does not enter magnificently like a worldly king. Then the appearance and the words of reason and nature would lead and drive us to see him as our king. But Christ comes and calls us to faith. So reason and nature cannot perceive him as a king. So Luther has a great quote here uh, that sort of summarizes it all. And he says, Thus it happens that whoever believes in Christ must perceive riches and poverty, honor and dishonor, joy and sorrow, life and death, and hold fast to them in that faith which clings to God's word and expects this. And you know, when I, when I read that quote, what popped into my mind with the, with the martyrs, the, the, the early martyrs who would, would be joyful as they're being executed, you know, where they, they, they would be joyful that they were, not, not that I'm advocating us becoming joyful, but that they would be joyful that they were found worthy of martyrdom. And, and there's this, this the, and actually there, there was this, in the early church, there was this this real embrace of this concept that that we have we have pov- riches and poverty honor and dishonor joy and sorrow life and death and that is something that at least for me when i when luther read that when luther wrote that and when i read it um it, it struck me as something that I don't know that I see a whole lot in today's church. There is this drive towards success, according to what reason and nature would drive towards an understanding of success, whether it's numbers in the pew, the number of politicians that belong to your church body. Every time there's a new Congress, um, different mainline denominations will trumpet the number of members of their denomination that are in Congress. There is this hope that if people see us as powerful and influential, they'll start to listen to us. And, and it's exactly the opposite of what Luther and Scripture is teaching us here. There is th- that our, our, our joy is not in this world. And, and that is, I think that's really what he's getting at. There's, I brought out the martyrs, and that is an extreme version, but the fact is is that we seem to have lost our way. So cling to God's word and you will find how God is revealed. The next thing that Luther is going to now comment in verse 5 is the phrase, your king. So he, he, he says, that, you know, here he separates this king from all kings. He is your king, he says, who was promised to you, to whom you belong, who alone shall rule you, yet in the spirit and not according to the secular government. 
This is again highlighting Luther's concern that the gospel is not something that you're just learning about. You're not just learning about a king. You are learning about your king. This is the direct application of the gospel to you where you are right now. Your king is coming to you. He wants to be your king. He doesn't want you to just know about some kingdom in far, far away land. He is coming to you in your world where you are right now. In the next paragraph, I'm going to say uh, it's actually the second half of paragraph 16. It's actually broken out as a second paragraph in the document, but they don't give it a number. Um, and he gives sort of a template. Luther gives sort of a template for a self-analysis where we can sort of look at this and see uh, where we are in, in, in this. He says, you know, and he gives this laundry list of stuff that can trouble our conscience. He says the devil, the flesh, the world, sin, as well as the law and death with hell. All of these things are, are things that trouble our consciences, that worry us. And I was sort of surprised when I saw on that laundry list the law. Uh, that, but, I, you know, it's, Luther is appropriate. He's right in saying that the law troubles our conscience. Without the freedom and liberty of the gospel, our souls are severely imprisoned and we have bitter, anxious lives when we haven't achieved the law. If we do not know the liberty that's found in the gospel, the law chains us to disappointment. So one of the things Luther is saying is that you can do a self-assessment. And he doesn't use these words, but at least this is what I took out of it was that you can do a self-assessment. And if you find in your heart bitterness and anxiety and, and those things, then you are being ruled by, by this laundry, something in this laundry list of, 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 of assassins. <laughs> he calls it, these are not kings, but assassins uh, at whose hand we suffer great misery and fear. They're tyrants. And again, I'm going to go, the devil, the flesh, the world, sin, the law, death with hell. The law is probably the most common in Christian communities because we, we, we work so hard to fulfill the law and, and it is a burden. We don't recognize it as something that drives our anxiety, that drives, our, 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 uh, drives us away from, from the joy that is ours in Christ. He uses this word inextinguishable. That our fear of death and hell is inextinguishable when we try to tackle it with our own strength. That you cannot defeat death. You cannot defeat hell. It just fires and flames against you. It is inextinguishable. But as Leviticus 26 says, such a heart is terrified even by the rustling leaf. So when you have a king who hasn't brought you relief, hasn't brought you protection, hasn't brought you care, then you remain in fear and fright. But he's giving us a promise in this text. Behold, your king is coming to you. So, and he says, when a heart receives this king with a strong faith, then the secure and fears neither sin, death, hell, nor any other evil. For he well knows and does not doubt that this king is a lord over life and death sin and grace, hell and heaven, and all things that are in, are in his hand. This is, a, a, this is a doctrine of atonement, is what's happening right here. How do you become at one with God? If you are separated from God because of all these terrors that you have said a couple times, right? Uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite a list, and, and I, I'm, I'm trying to remember it because it's, it's helpful to me as I go out into the world. You know? If you are separated from God because of all of those things, how do you become one? How do you 
get received back into the kingdom of God. He says, you become one when a heart receives this king. Then there is security and then there's no longer fear. When he becomes our king, he is the one that is able to deliver us from all such oppressive tyrants and rules over us himself. There might be some fear in replacing one tyrant with another tyrant. But this is where the gospel must be proclaimed, that Jesus doesn't come to be a new tyrant in our lives. He becomes the king that we need. Luther then sort of goes back to the, the sea. I mean, we, right now we are in the section, your king. The, this is a, a, pro, a discussion on the term, your king. But he goes back to sea and he says, he says, see your king, such boundless great treasures are brought by this poor neglected king who rides on a donkey. And so that's going back to the previous discussion, sort of saying, hey, listen, let's go back and think again about what is happening in this Bible reading? What yeah, is, reason doesn't see it. Reason can't see it. And, and it's only through faith that we grab hold of this gentle, kind, loving king who has come even to his enemies, even to his enemies, to, to, to save them, because we were his enemies, you know, to save us from, from all that, that terrifies us. And if you do not know the purpose for which the king has come, he will always remain far away from you. But if you know, if you know Mike, that he has come to be your savior, then this king starts to be a little bit more something believable. And, and it's, it, it is so important that Christ came so humbly. If Christ had come in, in pageantry, if Christ had come to, to Jerusalem in, in power and force, then he'd come as another tyrant. He'd come as another tyrant, but he doesn't. And he, just as he comes to us in the, in the very humble word of God, you know, in the humble scriptures, the, the spoken word that the, any preacher getting up and speaking in front of the congregation, Christ comes to this very weak. You know, even today, he comes weakly. He comes not weakly as in every week. He comes weakly as in poor and humble, just through the spoken word. The next thing that Luther goes on to is the phrase, he is coming. Without a doubt, you do not come to him and fetch him. He's too high. He's too far from you. And this is now where Luther's going to be attacking free will, which is so hard to do in America because free will is the hallmark the bedrock, the, the anchor upon which so much American liberty is built, that you can't tell me what to say, you can't tell me what to think, you can't tell me what to do. Think of all your First Amendment rights. How do those fit into your Christian faith? And so much of Christianity, Christian doctrine that is popularly available, we'll say, you know, as I go wandering through the, <laughs> the, the hellscape of American theology, <laughs> well, you know, there's, there's so many times that free will is referenced as the reason for our salvation. And, and Luther is saying, no. That decision theology is wrong. He calls it a poison. He says, by the power of our free will, we are first to seek God, to come to him, to run after him, to gain his grace. Beware. Beware of this poison. It is nothing but the doctrine of the devil by which all the world is led astray. 
you can call on God or seek him. God has to have first been there in your life. If you're going to call on God, if you're going to seek him, if you're going to go to him, that's only possible if he is first in your life. So this is this is the our free will according to Luther and he goes more deeply into it in uh, bondage of the will. But the, the this is this is a great summary of what is there in bondage. It's a very short couple of paragraphs of what is in bondage of the will that everything we do if if our free will is at work then we're going to pick the choice. Basically, all our free will is able to do is look, oh, am I going to do it wrong this way? Or am I going to do it wrong that way? Or maybe a third way? That's another great way to do it wrong. So many dead ends. So, <laughs> I, can, I can glorify myself this way. I can glorify myself that way. I can glorify myself this third way. That's what free will does. God must lay the first stone in you and begin that foundation in your life. If you're going to seek him, if you're going to pray for him, you must know that the king is coming to you. So he he goes into this sort of, he gets in, Luther gets into this sort of dialogue with his listener, with his readers, and he, he says, you ask, how shall we begin to be godly? And what shall we do that, in, in, what shall we do that God may begin his work in us? And Luther says, didn't you hear that there is no work or beginning in you that will make you godly? He's, he's basically saying, you're asking the wrong question. There is nothing for you to pull on. Everything that you begin, Mike, is going to remain in sin and is sin. No matter how brightly it shines for a moment, it's just a fool's gold. And he says, but then he gives another word from his readers who says, but you say, then I must necessarily sin if I work and live without God only from my free will and I could not avoid sin no matter what I do. He says, yep, truly it is so. And, and, and this, is, this is where Luther is. This is the found, I, I, I think Luther himself would say this is one of the foundations of Lutheran theology. This is, this is, this is the, the, the rejection of free will. When Luther was asked, what are your great works? And the rejection of holiness. And the rejection well. of holiness. Yep. He says, you remain in sin no matter what you do. And it is all sin what you alone do out of your own free will. There is an honesty in Luther that takes sin for what it is. It is so a part of us that we need a king that's coming to us because we can't go to him. So Luther says, uh, you know, uh, uh, if it was out of your free will and you could not sin, uh, you know, what would what would you need Christ for? He would be a fool to shed his blood for your sin if you, by your own free and might, uh, by were so free and mighty that you could do something which is not sin. So if you could do a holy thing without Jesus, if you could be perfect, if you could be perfect, if you could do something without sin then Jesus is a fool to die for you because you are already good enough. Right. Why die for you if you don't need to be died for? Why pay that price? Why pay? Why would Christ... That is such, uh, such an unbelievably large price that Christ had to pay. Why would he go pay that price if you could have done it yourself? And the truth is, I can't do it myself. That's why I need the king coming to me. There's no other beginning than this truth. The king comes to you, and he begins this good work in you. So Luther references in this, he, he says, um, you know, he talks about the, the beginning, the advance, and the completion is God's alone. 
uh, when he's talking about this. And he references Philippians 1.6. And, and this is what Paul says. I am sure, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the end, at the day of Jesus Christ. So you know, Paul agrees with Luther that he, not you, you didn't begin that good work. God, Christ Began, God began that, that good work in you that will come to fruition in the day of Jesus Christ. And so as you see a visitor, as you see a friend, as you see a neighbor, and you're trying to figure out, are they good soil? Are they someone I should preach the good news to? You and I do not have the wisdom to be able to know by uh, sight where the good soil is. Reason and logic would say the good soil is this, and you find the nice, the kind, the caring, the person that's doing all these good works, and I that could be an illusion. That could all be a lie. That could be self-deception. They could be hurting more than you ever know. Plant the seeds everywhere. God knows where the good soil is. We are at a good spot for a beer break today. We've got a beer from Wixom, Michigan, Drafting Table Brewing Company. It is a milkshake IPA called Orange Brulius. It's made with lactose, vanilla, tangerine, and blood orange. We're going to tell you a little bit about the this place, the drafting table. Aaron and Kristen are the owners. They went to Michigan State. He was a landscape architect. She was an interior designer. And uh, they say on their second date at Crunchy's in East Lansing, Aaron accidentally spilled an entire pint of beer on her, and they recognized this event as her uh, beer baptism into craft beer. Uh, well, uh- it is a good. I actually, this is a really good beer. I I, I do like all these citrus beers because they they they're they just they 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 have a lot of flavor to them. They but you cut that that for some reason that acid cuts the 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 bitterness a little bit, and I, I really do like that. It tastes a lot like M forty three. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. good stuff. Just to describe it, orange creamsicle inspired ale brewed with lactose, malt, oats, and wheat. Fermented with blood orange, tangerine, and vanilla. It's a classic hoppiness of an IPA with a soft, creamy, fruited finish. Uh, a description of the beer, you know, lots of orange emphasis on it. It is 6% alcohol by volume, and it is meant to be served in a glass. So this is one of those beers where there's actually direction on the can Um to direct you to not drink it from the can. And the, the reason is they're trying to get you to have that, that scent. They want to engage your nose. They want to engage your, your smell along with the flavors. And, and you do get, you know, as, as I'm, I'm putting it to my mouth um, and, and, and breathing it in a little bit, it does have a, a richness that I think would be lost if, if I had it just fresh out of the can. So there you go. Drafting table and wick some mixing. Drafting table in Wixom, Michigan. Uh, cheers. Cheers. Okay. Well, let's let's continue. And and we're talking about Luther was talking about free will. And and so what he's gonna do in this next paragraph, this is in paragraph 23, he gives all sorts of examples of how you don't do anything. Where where the, the God where where God comes to you from the outside. And he says, first of all, first and foremost is the gospel. The gospel that Christ came, he lived, he died, he rose. It must be preached, it must be heard. And in it you will hear and learn how all you do is 
nothing before God. Kind of echoing back from Philippians where Paul says, I consider all things rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing my Christ. Right. And he says, you, you fall away from all your works and despair of yourself. As, as you realize that your works are, are really geared towards self-glorification, you know, as you think more deeply about who you are and what it is that you're doing, then you, you despair of yourself. And the, then it's then that you are ready to feel, to understand that this great gift is coming from outside of you. Everything inside of us is geared toward yay toward for me. Sin. Yeah, yay, yay for me, that's self-glorification. And the ability to be able to hear and to accept this news that this king is coming to you, it's only by God's grace that you're able to render the gospel is something that should be fruitful in you and believe it. Yeah. One of the things that um, we are tempted to do and is, you know, and free, our free will will tell us that, you know, even, even that, oh, I, I chose to believe in Jesus Christ. Well, you know, then suddenly it, the, the, the critical thing is happening within us. That's not the way it happens. God comes from outside. The gospel is outside of us and crashes into us. And, and that is something it's that we despair of ourselves and that we're ready for, for the gospel. Where God does not send the gospel, then sin, error, and darkness remain. And there's no greater grace than to know the gospel has been delivered. To someone who does not know the gospel, they remain in sin, they remain in error, they remain in darkness. And what am I to do as a preacher to that person who is stuck in their sin and is stuck into their error and stuck into their darkness? I preach deliverance. This is sort of where Luther is. He's actually getting ready. He's getting his audience ready for next week's sermon. Next week's is because the next week, at least in Luther's day, the next week was talking about the last days. And Luther was absolutely convinced that 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 era was the end times. And it was exactly, you know, it's what he's, he goes a little, we'll talk more about it when we get there. But he's saying, you know, when he talks about there's no greater wrath, as Evan just talked about, no greater wrath that, uh, of God exists than where he does not send the gospel. Luther is looking out over the world of the Middle Ages, of the, the late medieval period, and he's saying, you know, the world seems to have been scrubbed of the gospel. Everybody is afraid. Everybody is terrified. And nobody is, is, is joyful in the gospel. So what does that cataclysmic moment mean for Luther's time? For Luther, it means we need to start talking about the king that is coming to you. It is not enough that he is a king, that he is a king that's coming, but specifically is a, he is a king that's coming to you. Why does he need to say that, that he is a king coming to you? Because he wants to present Christ as the most delightful way and draw us into this faith. So, yeah, and he's, he's like, you know, there, and he talks about there's no greater grace than where God sends the gospel. For there, the fruit and grace together must follow. So if you're in this moment when you think the world is in despair and destruction and sin and terror is all that you know, what is your response to that moment? Luther says, 
that moment is the moment that you tell everyone the king is coming to you. And you don't bring it with terror. And you don't bring it with fright. You bring it with a man humble riding on a donkey into Jerusalem with the good news that the king is coming. On a borrowed donkey at that. So we have, and Luther has this great laundry list of, that he goes through. It's, a, you know, you do not seek him. He seeks you. You do not find him. He finds you. For the preachers come from him, not from you. Their preachings come from him, not from you. Your faith comes from him, not from you. And everything that faith works in you comes from him, not from you. And that, so there's this, this like, listen, you, you have to recognize God is, is outside of you, breaking into your life. And, and, and all those good things that you get from the gospel are from God, not from you. And he has come to you. He has come to you. And so, that's, that, is, so that finishes up, your king is coming. And this daughter of Zion that is receiving this king has two kinds of possessions from Christ. The first is faith and the spirit and the heart by which she becomes pure and free from sins. And the second is Christ himself, that she may boast of the possessions given by Christ as though all Christ is and has were her own. And this is where he starts to talk about that which Christ has become yours. We would talk about this maybe in the language of uh, vicarious satisfaction or in language of the great exchange. Yeah, I, I, and the term I'm familiar with, I think because I'm not a Lutheran pastor, I haven't been trained. I just sort of read <laughs> whatever I can get my hands on. I, I, the great exchange sort of connects with me. You know, the, that term, the great exchange, where where we give our sins to God and God gives his righteousness to us. And what's fascinating about this is that that God gives us more than his righteousness. Christ gives us more than his righteousness. If you're listening to Luther, he says, uh, the first is, uh, he says, um, the second is Christ himself. And the, so uh, she, being the church, may boast of the possessions given by Christ as though all Christ is and has were her own, and that she may rely on Christ as upon her own inheritance. And he goes into this a little bit further, and he talks about how we are given everything Christ has. It's not just a matter of we're saved. No, we have his righteousness. We carry the crown of victory. Yes. Because Christ is victorious. If I believe in Christ, then his crown becomes my crown. And now, how did Christ bring his crown into the world starts to illustrate how I bring my crown into the world. If Christ was humble and riding on a donkey as a beast of burden, laboring for the benefit of man, I come into this world riding in burdens for the benefit of man. One of the things that has been helpful to me in this is that we... If, if we were just freed from our sins, we would be new Adam before the fall. But that's not what we are. We are so much more. We are freed from our sins and we are given Christ's righteousness. So all, not only are we wiped clean of our sin, we are given all the good works of Christ also. That is this great exchange, this, 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 this um, where we can we can boast in Christ and all of His works, and we we don't have to have done them because He's given them to us. Luther uses the terminology 
of, and it's, um, um, I might be jumping ahead a little bit here, but he, he says that uh, the second in, in uh, 27, and um, he says the second is Christ that she may boast his possessions. Uh, oh, I already talked about that. He, he says where, like when, a, when a, a wife and when a wife marries her husband, he doesn't, she just doesn't get the ring and the, the jewelry that he gives her. No, he, she gets all of his possessions. She gets everything that is his. And that is, that is the, 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 the great exchange that Christ has given us. And he's describing this relationship between the bride and bridegroom before he's married. That's true. He hasn't married Katie yet at this point, but he says, by coming to you, he becomes your own so that you gain mastery of his possessions, just as a bride becomes mistress of her bridegroom's possessions. In addition to the jewelry that he puts on her, these are pleasant and comforting words. You don't have to despair. You don't have to be afraid of death and hell because you now are wearing the mastery over death and hell that Christ himself has. Right. Right. It, it's, it's truly a remarkable statement. You know, we, we tend to think, and I, I think in the past, and, and I still, you know, in my lazy moments, <laughs> will fall into this, oh, well, you know, thank you for giving, you know, for wiping me free of, of my sins. But there's so much more that Christ promises us than that. He promises us to give us mastery, like, like Evan just said. Uh, uh, we get his righteousness. We get his, 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 everything he has becomes ours. Let's go to the next one, which is. So the next one is really a word that becomes a highlight of difference of translation. So we earlier mentioned in the ESV, the word behold and how Luther calls that word notice or see great translation. Um, Then we see in Matthew chapter 21, it says humble and mounted on a donkey. And instead of the word humble, Luther is going to translate that word as gentle. So, and, and Luther makes a big deal about this word gentle. He says, this word is to be especially noted and it is, it greatly comforts the sin burdened conscience. Sin naturally makes a timid conscience which is terrified of God, God and hides. And he references Adam. And he says, listen, that is the natural response. When, when we recognize our sin, we hide from God. We cannot endure the coming of God into our lives. If I am a sinner and God is holy and he's trying to come into my life, I don't like God because God is scary. But if God comes gentle, if he comes humble, if he comes as a servant to my salvation, then by faith I can start to see him as something other than an enemy of my sin. Yeah, and this is one of the things, I mean, we know God is an enemy of sin. God has made very clear in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, how how, how much he does not like sin. You know, and, and that is... But you know, one of the things that we also have to recognize is, I think it's in Kings or something, where God is going back, you know, just in the Manasseh or, or, or Josiah or one of these readings, where where he's talking about, hey, you know, you guys, the 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 Israelites have been sinners right from the moment you left Egypt, and I've been waiting and waiting. I have been patient. You know, you have been terrible sinners right from the very start, and you've only gotten worse and worse and worse. So God is patient, but we tend, when we look back at the Old Testament, we see that, 
you know, we don't see the long sentence of patience. We see the exclamation point at the end that says, okay, I'm done. So we're going to see Sodom and Gomorrah. We're going to see Babylon's destruction. We're going to see Cain and the mark. We're going to see Adam. We're going to see all these moments of, of clear, decisive action by God. But instead of seeing all those moments... If you can see a king that's coming to you gentle, right. now you see someone that you don't need to flee from, you don't need to be afraid, and you can know that he doesn't come in wrath. He doesn't want to call you to account. He doesn't want to affix this blame to you so it's always attached to you. Instead, all wrath is laid aside, and nothing but gentleness, nothing but kindness. One of the things that Luther mentions here, and it actually got me thinking about um, the... Uh, um, the um, you know, his, his comments sin boldly, right? Because he says here, he says, um, he acts as if he were sorry ever to have terrified you and to have caused you to flee by his punishment and wrath. For that reason, he wants to make you bold again and comfort you and kindly bring you to himself. And that made me think of that famous statement by Luther, and it was in a private letter, but he said sin boldly, right? And, and that was got a lot of, I've heard that many times, but what Luther is getting at both here and in that, that commentary, Sin Boldly, which uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks a lot about in his opening to uh, 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 Cost of Discipleship, is it's, it, the meaning is, as we seek to love our neighbor, we can be bold knowing that Christ came to us gentle. We don't have to sit and be frozen in fear, whether we're doing the right thing or the wrong thing. We, if, if, our, if we go out and we, in, in faith, we go out and try to serve our neighbor and love our neighbor, we can, we can make mistakes because our, our king has come gentle. So I, I think, Mike, we get to the spot where we can see Luther's clear emphasis is consoling the heart of a sin-burdened conscience with that clear exposition that you have a king that is coming to you gentle, and the reason this king is coming to you is because he wants to lead you into the kingdom. Absolutely. All right, so this concludes um, the second of three parts as we look at the gospel reading for the first Sunday in Advent. As we get into it in the next episode, we'll be looking at how there is an exhortation to good works in this passage, and then Luther has something he calls the secret meaning. So, while we while we finish up here, uh, we want to say thanks. Uh, this is all in um, Luther's works, volume 75, available through Concordia Publishing. And Amazon.com. And Amazon.com. If you want to reach out to us, you can catch us at graceontap.podcast at gmail.com or check us out on graceontap-podcast.com. Or you can check us out on Facebook, although not a whole lot of people are on Facebook anymore. Fewer and fewer. Fewer and fewer, including me. <laughs> I'm glad you keep monitoring it. Um, would appreciate any, any uh, reviews you can put out there, anything to get the word out. And if you have a suggestion for a beer that we should review next, not only suggest it, but provide it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers.